my friends, welcome back to another edition of the Grief Observed podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Morrell. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast, please send me an email, griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find my Facebook page, facebook.com slash griefobservedpodcast. Uh, just kind of connect with me and tell me uh, a little bit about yourself and maybe a little bit about someone that you've lost and uh, a little bit about your grief journey. And we'll try to get you on the show as possible. Um, as as I'm recording this, this is number three of four today, so it is quite busy. I'm starting to schedule out into February as we speak, but uh, don't hesitate to contact me and, and we'll get you on the show as soon as possible. My guest today is Vicki. Uh, Vicki is on the podcast on the podcast today to speak about the loss of her husband. And uh, Vicki, thanks for being here with us today to share your grief story. I know it's not always easy to be uh, talking about grief, but I appreciate you being willing to do so today. So welcome. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. I, um, I think part of my purpose in this journey is to openly share what this is like because uh, our society really has some work to do around dying and death and the grieving process afterwards. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's it's odd that you mentioned that. I've I've had that conversation once already today, but it's it's really interesting that uh, you know just the word death or dead or dying, like it's it's almost taboo. And sometimes we try to file the edges off of that and and make it sound prettier than what it is, but the truth is we've lost someone that we love, right? Yep. Yep. So Vicki, why don't you first talk about, uh, just a little bit about yourself and, and maybe that way people can better connect with your story throughout, uh, our time together today. Sure. Um, I'm a native Kansan and I have been living in the Houston Metro area for about 10 years. I'm the mom of two older boys. One's a teenager, one's grown and on his own. And um, I work for a software company in sales enablement, you know, have just a typical life like everyone else. And later in life, um, I met my husband again as an adult. Um, we originally met in high school and were friends for quite a while and dated a little bit and you know, as those high school romances go, they tend to not last very long. And um, through a mutual friend passing away, we very unexpectedly got back in touch and were friends for, gosh, three, four years. And things started getting a little bit more serious and um, dating with the intention of likely getting married, which did happen. And we were married about five years before he very unexpectedly passed away. Hmm. Yeah. Five years is, uh, it's a blink of an eye. You know, it, uh, I usually tell people to look at a good capture of life. I, it usually takes about five years. You know, if I asked you what you were doing January 19th last year, you know, you may know what it was if it were a special occasion or something, but if I asked you, you know, what kind of change has happened in your life, unless you've gone through something tragic, it's probably a blur, but five years, pretty good capture. But 
when you're talking about five years with an individual, wow, it blows by so quickly. And, uh, yes, I don't know. So talk about some of the good times that you had with your husband. So, um, we got back in touch. We were probably back in contact and, and friends for not quite 10 years before he passed away. Um, at first, it was just a lot of, you know, sharing life, catching up, um, sharing sermons, scriptures, that type of thing. We're, we're both Christians. Um, you know, then our talks just got deeper, you know, as our friendship deepened. Um, we did a lot of like hiking together, um, home cooked meals, that type of thing. We're both homebodies. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're not the ones out <laughs> we're past the hitting the bar stage and <laughs> right, right. doing, doing anything like that. Just spending time with friends and, um, lots of trips to visit family and that type of thing. Um, Probably one of the biggest blessings in our marriage, though, um, this may sound funny, is, is the pandemic, hmm. because from that point on, um, that first year, we were together pretty much 24-7, because by that time, he had started back to school. Um, Michael was in seminary for four and a half years prior to his passing, mm -hmm. so we spent um, every day together. Um, I was working from home. So, you know, we weren't around each other, you know, every moment of every day, but we spent a lot more time together than a lot of married couples are able to do that when you're both working outside the home. And I really think that that was the blessing from God that we were able to spend that time together. And I have since continued to work from home. So almost our entire marriage we were at home together, him going to school full-time and me working full-time. So we ate breakfast and lunch together. You know, he'd check on me throughout the day. We'd spend our evenings and weekends together. And we were really able to spend a lot of quality time together to the point we knew each other so well, we could almost communicate without even having to say a word. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I'd be on like a work call, you know, it'd be my fifth or sixth one of the day and my voice is about ready to give out and, you know, he'd just hear me cough and he would bring in water or, you know, some hot tea or something. It was just like, he knew exactly what I needed. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, it's amazing when a, a couple can have that type of connection and, uh, me and my wife were talking about that this past week about how, you know, we just feel like we're two rivers flowing into the same big river, you know, like so many times I'll finish her sentence or she'll finish mine, or we'll have the same thought at the exact same time. And it's just, it happens more often than not. And, uh, I don't know when you're thinking about someone that's perfect for you, uh, just what a feeling that is. And it sounds like you and Michael had that together. So that's great. Yeah, hey, absolutely. As, as adults, yeah, absolutely. Um, but that, you know, that spark that we had as teenagers was still there. And it's amazing how strong those feelings you can develop are. Um, 
and they were still there, you know, as adults. And then we just built on that as adults. Yeah, that's unusual too, because um, they state that butterflies generally last one to two years, but it doesn't mean that that spark is, you know, forever gone. Certainly there's, uh, you know, I, my wife doesn't jump into my arms when she comes home from work anymore, you know, but uh, <laughs> thank goodness. I don't know my back can handle it, you know, and that's, uh, that's not a cut on her at all. That's just a cut <laughs> on my back, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it does, you know, there are still moments when she does light up the room for me and, uh, and it just sounds like you all had a, a magic spark yourselves there. So that's, that's great. Mm. Yeah. We decided that since, you know, time, what we knew time wasn't going to be on our side, you know, getting together in our forties and getting married in our forties. So we just decided that we were just going to stay on our honeymoon and just always be newlyweds. Um, and we designed our relationship and marriage around, um, setting us up for success in that regard. So, mm. um, yeah, it, it was a huge blessing, um, and definitely it completely changed my life. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of, you were talking about kind of the COVID era and how, you know, there were a lot of couples that were at home together, but I don't know that they had as much success as you did being around your spouse as long. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, uh, um, I, I know I love my wife dearly, but I don't think I could work in the same house as her too long. <laughs> like it would, we do need that space. And that's what keeps, uh, I think the magic in our, our relationship alive is, is some of that separation. She works out of town some, and, uh, it, it makes me miss her when she's gone. So, um, but you know, for you to state that that is something that, that you enjoyed and loved about him and your relationship. That's, uh, that's just a wonderful thing. So, um, yeah. you spoke about him, uh, going into seminary and, mm -hmm. uh, so obviously, you know, your, your faith is an important aspect of, uh, your life. How did your faith intersect with the grieving process? Oh gosh. Um, definitely it integral and can't one can't really be separated from the other mm. um so another blessing um and I, this may sound strange coming out you know if because people usually don't think of blessings coming along with really horrible news um we had no idea michael was sick until until we found out he was sick we had no idea that he was sick um, as he was. We thought we were going to have more time together, but we knew that he was terminal. Um, we, and we knew um, he was going to be healed in heaven. Mm -hmm. We had some people around us um, trying to tell us to have hope. You know, people mean well, but he and I both had peace. And after talking with his multitude of specialists, you know, we knew where healing was going to occur. So my grieving process actually began from the moment um, we found out this horrible news. I mean, literally, you know, our lives were just humming along and Michael went in for what we thought was a routine, you know, fairly routine doctor's appointment. 
we thought he had bronchitis. We had no mm-hmm. idea that he, he had, you know, um, so many more things going on. Um, he had a multitude of uh, conditions that were potentially life ending. And he instead spent three, four days in the intensive care unit. Um, so my grieving began from the moment the doctor's delivering the horrible news, just like you're sitting in an episode of one of those medical shows where they're delivering you the bad news. Mm. So I, I believe that that's called anticipatory grief. So I did what I could to prepare and it helped a lot that Michael was still here to talk to him about this. Um, I think it was a little strange for him at times to be talking to me about planning my life without him. So I, you know, I did um, what kind of felt right from an instinct standpoint and what I knew. Um, I thought having lost both of my parents would better equip me for this loss to some degree. And it really didn't. Um, that was one of my huge surprises um, after he passed away was that I realized just how much I didn't know and how ill-equipped I was to get through this. Mm. So I quickly began looking for things that were going to be helpful in getting me to move forward and not just staying in this stuck, you know, kind of swirling the drain of sympathy and pity and sorrow and you know, being stuck in my feelings and figuring out, you know, how I'm going to move forward and what that looks like. So my faith has been, you know, with me um, all along. And it it has helped um, greatly. Um, Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of reading around what the Bible says about grief, what the Bible says about mourning, suffering, um, the promises of heaven. Um, and that has brought me some peace. Yeah, that's, uh, I think it certainly helps me knowing that there is more to this life than, than what's there now. You know, you turn on the TV, I I use that example a lot. You turn on the TV and this world seems hopeless in so many ways, but to know that there is something perfect, there is something better out there And to know that uh, many loved ones in my life are already there waiting on me. Um, I I hope they're they're making my home a beautiful place to live whenever (laughs) I get there. Uh, But I I do have uh, just this this much better feeling knowing that there's more to life than what we see here on Earth. So, yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I sure learned quick uh, is just, well, a couple of things. We need to be really intentional with our time because, you know, the stark reality is we all know how this ends. We're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> we just don't know when. Um, you know, Michael had a little bit of a gift in in knowing that it was imminent so he could be very intentional about his time and what he wanted to do and how he wanted to spend it. Um, and 
it's almost impossible to describe to someone else until you've actually been in that situation. It's kind of just like somebody throwing a big bucket of cold water on you and you realize all these things that you've worried about and spent time on that, you know, there's certain things that we need to do to earn a living and to keep our house up and stuff like that. But we really spend a lot of time and effort on things that really just don't matter from an eternity standpoint. Yeah. Whenever it's all said and done things, money, you know, it's, it's all worthless. The only thing that uh, stands is relationship and love. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I I can't think of anything beyond that. You know, it's when you hear people talk about, well, I want to leave a legacy. Um, what does that look like? You know, it's, uh, certainly I hope that I have made my mark on this life and that things that I have done will encourage or, uh, bring help to others, but things that I've accumulated, um, you know, things that I will pass down, it's, it's meaningless. Oh, absolutely. And and our purpose is a big part of our legacy that we leave behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know that I really discovered my true calling till, um, you know, I, I'm 48 and I, looking back, I started professional counseling at 42. Uh, obviously I would have figured that out just a little bit earlier because of all the school involved, but, uh, I don't know that I really knew who I was until, close to graduation point when I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm going to be a counselor. Holy cow. You know? And, <laughs> but when I look back at my life, I can see so many times where, um, I was helping people and, you know, even from age seven, I always joke around about me being in the churchyard and kids are playing football and everything. Not that I didn't do that, but so many times I would sit there and talk to what I perceived to be old people was probably about people my age now, (laughs) but, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would be talking to them and, you know, around age seven or eight, just asking simple questions like how's life treating you? What's going on with your kids? And it's like, (laughs) wow, I, I think I've always been called to do what I do. Um, and unfortunately, or, or maybe even fortunately, I found that later in life. I don't know that I would have appreciated that knowledge, uh, in my youth and, and probably even in my twenties and thirties. But I think when you know your purpose, you know, your calling, um, you do become more comfortable with mortality. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, in my last podcast, um, I was speaking about this exact thing that if, you know, I, I love life and I want to keep on living, but if if I checked out today, I would not feel cheated at all. It's it's uh-huh. been a good life. I feel like I have been living out my purpose, uh, my purpose in Christ, my purpose in just living. And, and again, I don't know that you can, uh, you know, say that there's a difference there. If you're a believer, you're you're living in Christ, or you know that that's it. <laughs> you know, so uh-huh. uh, your earthly life and your your future life in heaven are uh, really the same thing. Um, it, it has a different look to it, but I don't know that you can separate the two. Uh, but 
if if I were to ask you who you are as a person, um, do you feel like that has changed at all through your grief process or do you feel like it's just become more evident about your calling? That's a really good question. Um, I'm barely six months into this. Um, I know I'm not going to be the same person. Um, you know, I, I think to a large degree, your personality, you know, your skills, your abilities, your talents don't necessarily change a whole lot. It's that, you know, refining of silver that God talks about in the Bible that occurs. There are certain trials thrown our way that you get thrown a little bit closer to the flame than, than other, you know, challenges that we all walk through in life. Um, so I, I think, um, it's definitely made me compassionate toward people, you know, not that I wasn't before, but it's different when you've walked in those same shoes because you have a pretty good idea of what they're actually feeling and experiencing, you know, when they first get the news or walking through it right after someone dies, I think you're just better equipped with what to say and do and how to help because you lived it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, byproduct of that is being a little bit more in tune and compassionate. Um, I think my purpose is going to change probably not um probably more from a refinement standpoint like the you know the getting the impurities out of the silver and i don't know what that is yet um that this grief walk is an interesting balance of not doing too much of anything you you know you you need to feel your feelings but you can't get too much into your feelings because then that isn't healthy and you want to stay busy but you can't you know, busy yourself to the point that you're not dealing with things and processing things. And it taxes your brain. It's hard on your body. So the time that you have to spend taking care of yourself is, it it definitely requires more time and effort than when, you know, times are good. So um, I haven't really focused, like hyper-focused a whole lot on like what how my purpose is going to change. I'm just kind of being open to as that um, comes to pass, but I feel really, really passionate about doing something. Um, And this could just be, you know, something that I do through my church. I I don't know what this is going to look like, but I I really feel um, called to do something to help make the people that I know, you know, my friends and family, this, this will happen to them eventually. It's going to be a parent, a sibling, their own spouse, you know, 50% of intact marriages. One of, one of the two of you is going to walk the same walk at some point in time. And so much of what is available out there um, is not helpful for grief. Hmm. Traditional therapy for me didn't help my grief. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the support groups, you know, and I, um, I don't want to make generalizations because everybody's walk is different. Their loss is different. 
your stage and station in life and your age, there's so many different factors that come into play. So it's not like there's a recipe. And if everyone just follows the same recipe, then you'll get to the other side. I think what everybody needs is a little bit different. But um, I feel called to do something that is more um, hopeful and promising um, that helps catapult people forward into whatever their new life and purpose is going to be rather than just wallowing in it because it's really easy to get stuck and wallow in the sadness or the anger or feeling cheated or, you know, a whole host of other regrets or guilt that the enemy wants to throw at us. Yeah, definitely. No, I I think it's, really good that, uh, you, you speak about the refinement because it sounds like, you know, you're, you're pretty firm in who you are, but how you're going to use that may change and, you know, may, may refine from what you would have envisioned. You know, I, I ask people often, it, you know, if you had a three to five year plan and I asked that three to five years ago, would you even be talking to me on this podcast right now? You know, the answer is no, you, you would have never envisioned this. Um, so vision changes, um, but it's not always a bad thing, you know, that, that, uh, you were called to do something. And and the great thing as a believer, you and I can agree that there's no surprises with God, right? He, He knew that you and I would be talking at this very moment at this very day, before you and I were even born and, you know, my mind, that just, that's mind blowing to me. (laughs) Um, but you know, I, I find comfort in knowing that we were supposed to be here, you know, and it's hard to say that, especially in times of grief. You know, I, I told you, uh, before we even punched record today that, you know, I hate that, we meet under these circumstances. I'm glad to meet you, but it really stinks that it has to be like this, you know, um, through grief that we meet. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I just keep going back to no matter what your circumstances are, God will use it for good. You may not see it right away. You may have to trust in that for a little while And it doesn't make it okay. You know, like I'll never get to a point where I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm okay and fine that Michael's gone. Right. I'm always going to miss him that, you know, loss is probably always going to be there. Hopefully for time, that white noise that's always playing in the background is going to get more quiet over time as I fall into my new purpose and see more and more good come out of this. Um, And I've tried to structure things where, um, where our family can glean some, some more good out of this and, and help other people through this, but yet also not setting myself up for living a whole bunch of rituals year after year that are going to remind me of this loss. You know, that's also another balance, you know, to what degree do I want to, you know, check the box on every holiday and every important day that goes by, you know, from month to month and year to year. Yeah. You spoke of anticipatory grief and, you know, that's, that is something that I think is overlooked in a lot of ways. 
but I'm curious of between Michael's diagnosis and his death, how long of a time period did you have with him? Definitely not long enough. It was not quite two months. Wow. And the day we found out was the day before my birthday. <laughs> oh my goodness. Worst birthday ever. Um, and worst birthday gift ever. He, Michael was the one that pointed that out. Um, I think what helped me with my anticipatory grief was having a name for it and knowing what I was feeling and the fact that he had such peace about it. I mean, he, he knew what was going on before I got up to the hospital and I never saw him shed a tear. Uh, I never saw him get angry. You know, he accepted it and had complete peace about it. Um, you know, it's not to say that he wanted to leave, you know, he definitely didn't want to leave us. And there were things, there were a lot of things that he still wanted to do. And he had, you know, of course, a lot of natural regret that, you know, gee, I wish I would have used my time better, you know, when I was healthy and and accomplished these things. And I I think we're always going to want to do more, you know, no matter what we've done throughout our life. But um, the, he, he told me the one and only time that he shed a tear was when he was petting the dog and realized that the dog wouldn't understand why he left and that mm. he, he teared up over that. And I was like, you, know, you don't cry over leaving your wife, but you'll cry over leaving the dog. Mm. I'm sure it was difficult though for him. Um, I think a lot of times the role of a man, we, we try to um, at least pretend that we're okay. And I don't know, sometimes we're not. So I'm sure that, that he did feel uh, a lot of, of grief that he was leaving you behind, but uh, yeah. And I'm sure he did. Um, You know, I, I even asked him, you know, about that a few times, like, you know, are you sure? Cause you know, you can tell me. And he had a few calls with some of his um, professors and a couple of family members. And I'm not exactly sure, you know, what was shared in those conversations, but if he was going to share feelings like that, that's most likely who he would have talked to, you know, just if only to ask for prayer support, but you know, whenever I was around or like publicly, um, he would always ask that people pray for me because he would point out and he even pointed this out to me that if this if this had happened to me, you know, if the roles were reversed, that he would not have been he would not have had the same reaction. Hmm. He told me that he got the much easier into the deal that he just gets to die and go to heaven. You know, not that dying is a you know, pain-free, easy process sometimes. Um, but that, you know, I would be the one left here that would have to live with this loss and get through it and then you know, pretty much completely rebuild my life. Mm. And uh, at the time, I had really underestimated the degree that I was going to need to rebuild my life. One thing I did not know about going into this in that anticipatory grief stage is all the secondary losses that occur after your spouse dies. 
Yes. Why don't you talk a little bit about secondary losses? Like what, what are some losses uh, that you have occurred? Oh gosh. Well, you, I mean, the obvious one, you, you lose your identity as a wife. Um, mm. I loved being a wife. I prayed for, you know, a godly man that would really love me to the degree that he could, you know, like Jesus loves everyone. And mm -hmm. that definitely uh, showed up in Michael. Um, so to lose that, that was a bitter pill to swallow and work through. Uh, and I'm still working through that one. Um, pretty much all of your relationships change, especially the ones closest to you that are also grieving most people don't know what to say or do some people are processing their own grief or trauma um, there's usually some outliers <laughs> that, that have maybe narcissistic tendencies that make your loss about them mm. uh, and kind of um, not overreact but put themselves more in the middle than they they should be sure um and a lot of people don't know how to be around you because you know they're not in your head so they don't know what to say or do that would be helpful you know are you having a good day or a bad day um and it it can often pain them to watch you in such pain and agony and then not knowing you know what to say or do and if i mean if anybody takes anything away from this podcast, I hope, you know, let yourself off the hook on saying the right thing, because there's really nothing that you can say. The important thing is to just show up and be there. Yeah. And actually saying less is saying a whole lot more. Um, yes. And also, don't make it about your loss. Um. And it, people meet, and I, I've done this myself, so, you know, I, I hope anybody listening to this doesn't get mad at me <laughs> or wonder, is she talking about me? Because I've done this myself, thinking that it's helpful, desperately trying to relate to somebody and their loss that I haven't walked before. So you try to find some commonality. And what people don't realize is when you're the... 85th person to show up in a, you know, one or two day period telling, you know, the, the person who's grieving about their loss, you can't process that anymore and you can't help them. No. So it, it's, you know, the, the people mean very well in doing that, but just stop and think that that person has probably heard about everybody's uncle and brother-in-law and cousin and friend and coworker who had this and that, and it's just like this or that. And, you know, no, it's not. <laughs> and sharing that really isn't helpful because the person that you're talking to is just not in a place where they can process it because they, they, they can't even cope with their own enormous loss, let alone everyone else's. And it just kind of um, weighs, sometimes it can weigh you down and make you feel, you know, even more hopeless. Like, oh my gosh, everybody's sick and everybody's dealing with this. And 
you know, everyone's dying right and left. Um, so it, it's a it's a very um, tricky balance to know what to say or do. And one thing I wish I had done a better job of is knowing um, how to ask for what I needed. And, and mm-hmm. that when you're in deep grief, that's really hard to figure out. Like when you can't remember what day of the week it is and you think you may have brushed your hair, you know, when somebody, um, somebody asks, you know, like, what do you need? Usually don't know what you need. So to put together some sort of plan about, you know, okay, this is what I need. When people ask me these questions, here's what to say. Um, That's something that's not the easiest thing for a grieving person to put together. But it, I think it helps, um, it helps your friends and your family members engage you in a conversation where they can actually help you because that's what they want to do is help you. Yeah. I, I could not, uh, I, I should just cut out that whole section Vicki and put that at the beginning of every podcast because <laughs> you, you just stated something that I think is, is very, very important. And, you know, I always joke on this podcast about potentially writing a book about the hundred dumbest things that I've ever heard at a funeral. (laughs) And one of those is I exactly, you know, I know exactly how you feel and it's like, Oh, that's horrible. Don't, don't say that to people. I think uh, when you stated, you know, sometimes stating less is more, if people just come through the line and say, I'm here for you, or uh, I, I will be whatever you need me to be for you or simply, I am sorry and just move on. And like you stated, I I think these people, they have really, really good intentions. Um, There's something that I've mentioned before on this podcast, but um, I'll assume that not everybody has, has gone through every episode and, and just stated again, there's something called the rule of thirds. And it basically states that a third of people will be very helpful to you in your grieving process. There's going to be a third of people who's neither helpful nor hurtful to you. And then there's a third of people who are hurtful or harmful to you. But the trick is they may not be intentionally being harmful. And I think that's where this category of people that you're talking about, you know, those that are, you know, trying to make connection because they're filling in the gaps Um, You know, when I went through school, one of the things the professors always talked about was um, not filling in the gaps with clients. Sometimes just sitting in silence, they're going to fill in the gap for you. And it's so true. People are very, very uncomfortable with silence. But um, I think by trying to make those connections in a funeral line or just calling up someone who's in grief and then making it about us. It's definitely the wrong thing to do at that time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you, if I'm sorry, go ahead. That, that third, a third, a third, that's very interesting. And, And I definitely think that's pretty applicable. And, you know, one thing I want to stress is that, most people by and large really mean well and they really do want to help and they do care it's 
there are certain blind spots or they have their own unresolved grief or trauma. Um, you know, I think my third, you know, of people who said hurtful things, it, it pro- um, I know it wasn't a third, it was much smaller than that. And they tended to be people that I knew the least well or mm. not at all. Yeah. The people closest to me, um, you know, I would put in that first third category. Um, and then there's a lot of people that just don't know what to do with you. So they phone it in with a text message or um, avoid you um, yeah. because they're uncomfortable or your situation dredges up things or or fears that, you know, is just completely on them and they need to, you know, work through that or, or realize it, but it's easier to just avoid the situation. Like all of this, I think is pretty typical and normal from other people that I've talked to who've walked through the same thing. You know, as I sit here, I, I'm a humorous guy and, and I know working with grief is, um, it's hard to have humor sometimes, but as you're sitting here talking, I was sitting here thinking, um, you know, if I owned my own funeral home, would I come up with like 10 commandments for funerals or, you know, <laughs> like a, a law to abide by, like read these 10 things before you walk in here. And number one is don't state, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> you know, what would number two be? Um, you know, but if people would just take a moment and literally think, what would I want if I was in this person's place receiving family and friends right now, what would I need the most from them? If they would take that moment and really think about it, I think they would probably leave some of those comments on the table. Yeah. I, I don't know. And, and if anyone is not sure, I can tell you what you need is three to six months later is just someone to be around and someone to, to leave space to talk about your loved one. Yeah. Um, I, I can kind of tell, like, I'm about six months into this now that, that it, this just could be my own perception too, but it seems like some of that is waning, you know, like I need to move on and sure. It, um, one thing I have realized in this is that for everybody else, they get to move on and mm. they get to go live their life because they're not living the same loss that I am. You know, even Michael's other family members, I, I really think it's different when you lose your spouse, just like when you lose a parent, it's way different than when you lose a child. And it's not, um, it, you know, I'm not playing the sympathy Olympics here, trying to, um, you know, say what one loss is worse than another. They're all horrific. They're just horrific in very different ways. Mm. Yeah, I, I've also joked on here. I, I think people will check out on this podcast pretty soon because I, I feel like I keep saying some of the same things. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I have also joked about writing a book on grief at some point and the title I would love to have when the last casserole is gone, you know, and, 
<laughs> you obviously get that because so many people on the front end, they're ready to help. They're bringing food. They're calling. They're texting. They're sending cards, flowers. And then two, three weeks later, it is where where are they at that point? And this three to six yeah. month period that you're talking about, I think that's when you still need a lot of help. You know, you need people stating, I'm praying for you. I'm here for you. Let me mow your yard. Here's a gift card. Go out and treat yourself to dinner. Hey, let's go out to dinner together. You know, where are those people? And you just stated they're back in their lives. They're doing their own thing because yeah. the loss didn't um, affect them like it does you. This this affects yeah. your every single day life. Whereas yep. for them, um, and, and I don't mean this in a, a negative way, but you know, to attend a funeral, a burial, a visitation, um, it may have been uh something that that changed their life for a weekend, right? But it doesn't change the way they are affected on a daily basis like you are. Oh, right, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, anyone listening to this that knows me, please don't feel like don't keep a whole bunch of guilt on yourself because I'm talking, you know, just as much to myself, um, you know, things that I would say and do and thought and believed prior to this experience happening. And when it doesn't happen to you, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't remember exactly when he died. You know, they don't know how long that it's been for me um but the, definitely that first third um you know they still check in with me and mm -hmm. and they're around you know to go have dinner or do you know just hang out do whatever to pass the time so it isn't um so lonely um for me this is working from home this has been a huge adjustment you know, all that time that we had together during the pandemic and then after to all of a sudden have that person be gone. For me, the grief brain, you know, the widow brain has mm -hmm. been, I, I've been hit extra hard with that because all day long I'm around things that bring up memories or, um, you know, just trigger lots of different things. So there's so much processing going on that a good deal of the time my brain is overloaded and I definitely need my sleep and usually get to bed at night pretty tired. Mm. Yeah. You know, like you were stating, uh, if family and friends are listening, you know, it's, this is not, um, criticism towards them or anything like that. I, I think we've all stated things that, uh, you know, once we've gone through a more personal grief, uh, in a situation like this, I feel like it just makes us more aware and better aware of what we do need to say or or don't need to say or do. Um, I don't know. Yeah, there, is, there is nothing that you can say or do that is going to make that person feel better or fix it. Right. The, and, you know, if people could just shift their mindset from that to just being there and, and the, you know, that includes, you know, 
three months, six months, you know, a, a year later, because that's really when you need it, that that time period after someone first dies and when everyone is around, it, it's kind of overwhelming. You know, it's nice and comforting because you have a lot of people around, but everyone goes home all at once and then you're there by yourself. You know, and in my case, you know, I became a single parent again overnight. Um, everything that Michael used to do around the house, you know, for me, um, which was a lot of stuff, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. all that's on me now, um, you know, in addition to grieving and trying to figure out my new purpose and dealing with all the things that grief does to you physically, um, you know, trying to exercise, you know, it's, it's a lot. It, yeah. it, it's a lot. It is. And, you know, you were speaking about secondary losses and I think for a spouse, the amount of secondary losses is far greater than any other relation uh, relationship that we would lose in this lifetime because uh, you are a helpmate, you know, and, and if you leave this life, then you've left so many duties, so many things, you know, there's the loss of uh, security, the loss of finances, you know, there, there are so many other secondary losses for a spouse. And, uh, you know, I, I do hate that you're going through this Vicky and, uh, but it sounds like you above all have a really positive attitude, even though it's, you, you would have never chosen this for your life. You know, it's obvious, but, uh, you know, it seems like you do have a positive outlook on your future and, um, you know, that tells me really where you're at in your grief journey, you know, and, and a lot of people at that six month mark are still so lost. They, they can't see beyond the loss at all. What is it that you're doing that you think has been most beneficial in staying positive through this negative situation? Um, well, I have my days where I don't feel so positive, you know, I feel overwhelmed, extra sad, even angry. And I try to not stay in that place for very long. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, pretty, I, I mean, I know Michael wanted me to be happy. And, you know, if Michael had the ability to come back and visit with me for a little bit, he would probably be a little bit upset with me for the amount of time that I have spent being upset, bewildered, sad, you know, all, all those feelings. Um, Cause where he's at, he's having a great time. You know, he's whole and perfect and in, in perfect health. And he is exactly who the person that God designed him to be. Mm. So that's what I keep going back to. And that is a blessing that a lot of people don't get, especially like when your loved one dies suddenly with no warning. Michael and I had a lot of time to talk about what he wanted for me. Um, so I know he wanted me to be happy. Um, he told me all the time that he, hope, he hopes that I would be open to finding love again. He even told other people, mutual friends and family members that to call and remind me of that occasionally. <laughs> mm. 
so the, it, it was, um, that is a blessing that I have that I can kind of go back to and kind of re- recenter myself that me being happy now or having joy, having fun, that's not something that I should feel guilty about. That's what he wanted for me. Um, very early on, I started looking for things that would help me not swirl in my feelings or um, cause it's really easy to find things that will just affirm where you're at, you know, Oh, well, your husband passed away. Yeah. It's natural that you should feel, you know, bad you know, well, okay, how do I move forward? There's a lot of support out there, but not a whole lot of constructive stuff on how to move forward and out of it. Because like I said earlier, this is a very different kind of loss. This isn't like when you lose your job and, you know, well, I'm going to power through this or, um, for me, this was not something that I could just power through using, techniques and tactics that I've learned before walking through other hard things. This one just flattened me completely. It, you know, you lose your, your mate, your protector, your hopes and dreams, your future totally changes. You have all the secondary losses. You have the physical grief. Like, you know, like I said, it's a lot. Um, and, And one day, um, this is in November, I was online, you know, just searching for anything that would um, bring relief because, you know, the further out I got from the loss, the quieter it was getting. And the more that I realized mentally, I just wasn't taking um, a good turn. Like I was still functioning, but I just didn't want to exist because I know, um, that's not what God wants for us. God just doesn't want us to cope and exist. God right. wants us to live in our purpose um, and let people see Jesus in you. Yeah, there's definitely a, a difference between existing and abundant life, right? And I, I do believe that uh, as believers, we we should strive to have that abundant life even here on earth. Um, and we are called to a greater purpose for sure. Yeah. Um, Vicki, I've got one last question before I'll, I'll let you have the, the final floor here, but uh, this is the million dollar question. And I don't know that I've ever asked anybody else on this podcast. Um, I don't expect uh, you to have an immediate answer, but what do you think heaven will be like? Oh gosh. Um, this is something that I definitely want to do more reading and research into. Um, yeah, there's I a think... book out there, uh, heaven by Randy Alcorn. My wife has, has read that. I, I need to read that myself. Cause I, I want to know that's more. That's in my playlist. Right? Is it? That, Good deal. Yeah, Good that's, deal. that's in my audiobook list. And there's another one. I think it's called Imagine Heaven. My grief coach um, shared that one with me to read. Excellent. I think I'm like halfway into chapter one, so I can't really tell you <laughs> what, what the book is about. No worries. I think, I, I think our um, comprehension and our language is insufficient for what heaven is like. Agreed. 
Um, I think that there's some characteristics that we can try to apply to it, you know, but just, there's no pain, you've, you've got, you know, no problems, you, you're in perfect health, you're the person that God designed you to be exactly without all the stuff that we're shackled here with on earth, you know, spiritually, mentally, physically, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you're, um, you've got your assignments up there, you know, whatever that, you know, that looks like. Um, I want to be on and- the heavenly hockey team. I, I, I was not able to play it at, on earth. And, uh, at this point, my body is too far broken to even try, but that's what I always state. I want to be on the he- heavenly hockey team. <laughs> I hope I have a better singing voice in heaven <laughs> than I do here. Uh, well, that would be nice if we got our heart's desires up there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm certain that we'll, we'll be happy no matter what position i I also joke around and say I'd be happy to be the the heavenly janitor or, you know, uh, whatever it is that, you know, I, I, I'm just going to be happy to be there, uh, happy to see loved ones that have gone before me. I think it'll be yeah. a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And uh, I think wow. it's just going to be nothing short of amazing and, and- you know, having sat with enough people who have been in the active dying stage where you can witness them, you know, when they're, um, what is it that they call that when there's a veil that separates heaven and earth, you know, when they start to go through the veil and just see, um, their mannerisms and how they're acting, you know, you know, that there's good stuff on the other side. Yeah. Whenever heaven and earth collide, that's what I talk about in one of my grief seminars. And, uh, if you have been with someone in their final days or in those last moments and you see that it is, it's chilling. I'm actually getting chills right now. Just thinking about some (laughs) of the, the things that my grandfather saw there at the end and, Uh, You know, I was blessed to be with him when he passed, but for him to see friends who have gone before him tells me, you know, there, there is no shadow of a doubt that there is heaven and something beyond. And uh, I will tell you, there's a, a book that I just started reading from David Kessler and forgive me for just a moment. I'm looking it up as we speak. It's called Visions, Trips, and Crowded Rooms. And it's about this very thing. And it's uh, David Kessler is kind of the grief guru of counseling. Very, very brilliant man. But he did a lot of time in hospice. And this is based off of a lot of the people that, uh, you know, and their families that he dealt with over years. And it is just really amazing. And and he wrote the book stating that this is too common of a thing for it to not be real. You know, Mm -hmm. that the things that people see, the things that people say where, when they're in those dying moments and, uh, Oh, I've yeah. literally only finished chapter one. I, I hope to get that finished very soon so I can speak more about it. But 
wow, it is just a phenomenal thing to see or to to witness when, you know, like I stated, when heaven and earth collide, it is what an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of the, you know, you go online and start searching for people that have shared their near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's gone to heaven of, of the ones that have, you know, they're legit. Right, right. None of them wanted to come back. You know, they, yeah. they loved their family and friends in their life, but none of them wanted to come back. But they they came back for a reason. It wasn't their time. Yeah. Vicki, I, I appreciate you being here. Um, as I do with all guests, I at least want to give you the floor. And if there's anything that you think we've missed or anything extra you want to uh, throw out there, anything you want to plug, uh, feel free to do so. I, the floor is yours. I, I just really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be with us and uh, just talk through your grief journey today. Well, absolutely. Um, thank you. Um Probably the the only other thing that I would add, you know, outside of having a couple of um, really good friends and colleagues that have walked along beside me, and let me tell you, it is not easy to walk along beside someone going through this because it's like a roller coaster. I, um, in my searching for something to help, I um, hired a, a grief coach to help me move forward um in constructing you know what my new life is going to be mm-hmm. um i did so just i guess to fast track this cuz i don't want to spend a moment longer in pain and suffering than i have to you know so anybody who no matter how many months or years out it is for your from your loss you don't have to live this way in in pain and grief and just all consumed with it this is not what god wants for us um so i i'm very early on in this journey with my grief coach but um i'm really hopeful that this is going to give me the tools necessary in order to move forward not you know not just nice platitudes or talking about it you know talking about it does help to a degree um but you really need more than that to get you through those dark moments and then figure out where it is that you're going forward to yeah well vicky thanks again for being here and uh i wish you well on your grief journey and you know i i talk to many people on on this podcast and always state you know maybe we'll touch base with you and another six months a year from now i would love to hear just how you've grown in life and and how you've grown around your grief you know grief doesn't shrink we just kind of grow around it and uh i just i thank you again for being here thank you yes and i'd love to excellent Well, thank you all for listening to another Grief Observed podcast with us. And uh, if you want to be on the show, contact me at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on the Facebook page. I'll have Vicki's information in the show description. Uh, I'll catch you next time and trust that all is well until then. 
Thanks for being here. 